Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio. Well, this is BC Radio Live. BC Radio. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Not sure what happened there, but aloha. Tonight on BC Radio Live, we're going to talk with Tony Catania, acclaimed producer for Scatman John for Millie Vanilli. Now, there's an interesting story. He's also the producer of Phoenix Clock, currently. We'll also chat with drummer Steve DePace of the punk band Slipper. First up, we're going to hear from Martha Lear about her new book, Where Did I Leave My Glasses? The What, When, and Why of Normal Memory Loss. If, of course, we can remember how to do all of this, this is Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. The live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined right now by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hello, Eric. Hi, Philip. Is that your name? Yes, good. I'm glad I, remi- I'm, I could recall it in my mind. You know, I'm reading over the um, part of, or maybe it's all, the, or a significant portion of the first chapter of Martha's book, fascinating where did i leave my glasses the what when and why of normal memory loss and i'm telling you at only 49 years old i have found myself when i'm speaking extemporaneously which would include occasionally on the radio but more more when there's a variety of people around and she explains that too like in a cocktail party type situation and there are times when uh, when a name that I absolutely know slips my mind, and it is it is disturbing. So I'm really eager to discuss that with her. I want to know all that I can do, all the drugs that I can take <laughs> to uh, improve my memory and keep my mind sharp. Because, man, I'm just getting going. You know, I expect to live, you know, at least another 50 years, and I got little kids, and I got all kinds of responsibilities. I can't have the mind slash memory going. Yeah, I used to wonder about my parents. My uh, my parents had seven children. I'm the, I'm one of seven, and I used to wonder about how my mother would say, "You there, Daniel, no, Josh, uh, Caleb, uh, David, uh, Jono, uh, Philip," before finally hitting my name. And, and I thought that was really strange. And then and then when I found out about this book, I thought maybe this might be an explanation for it. But I've I've calculated backwards, and I'm pretty sure she was in her 30s when that was happening. <laughs> yeah, I I think that was just a bunch of people. My mother did that too. We had four. We have four, four of us, and uh, and then various pets. And there were times when she'd go through the pets before she got to the right name. <laughs> and there were only four of us, so you know, it's just. Yeah, I, I think I think parents and maybe it's in particular mothers, especially if they're around more, uh, get flustered, you know, and and they they have all the names. It's not that they don't know them. Uh, it's just they ca- they have to sort through them. What's interesting here in in this first chapter, though, is and I hadn't really thought of it this way. You know, why names as opposed to other kinds of words? And and uh, the consensus seems to be because names don't really mean anything. There's no association, and that's the way memory works. We associate things together visually, and uh, with words and 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 auditorial auditorily. And but with the name, it's just it's it's meaningless. It's just a name. There's nothing really to attach it to. And, you know, the more I think about this as we're talking, in my DJ days, my primary DJ days, back in the 80s and and to a lesser extent in the 90s, uh, you know, I was only in my 20s in the 80s, and uh, I was running around doing all these parties everywhere and, uh, you know, off at uh, fraternities and sororities and and uh, corporations we worked with regularly, and there were a lot of people I saw very regularly. And you know what? I had trouble remembering their my their names then. So maybe it's just me, and it's not the, the, uh, the association thing is actually really interesting because I I will never forget that in about 1991, I uh, was with a friend who who had a really good memory for names, and I remember asking him, you know, how how do you do that? Because I've never had a good memory for names. And uh, he said, well, watch. And so he, he went and introduced himself to a couple and asked what their names were, and they, they told him Sharon and Wendell. And so he kind of, you know, rolled his eyes into the back of his head a little bit and thought for a second, smiled and said, okay, great, thanks, Sharon and Wendell. 
And, and it's worth noting, you know, I'm talking about people that I haven't seen now in, uh, you know, probably about 15, 16 years, and I still remember their names because after they walked away, I'm like, why are you smiling? And he said there was a, there was a very uh, popular radio commercial at the time for S&W canned beans. And so now just whenever he saw them, he would think of S&W canned beans, and, and that was enough for him to think of Sharon and Wendell. And clearly it worked because... <laughs> I well, still remember them. I, I have heard that too. That you do, you make an association, and and one of the ways is to do it by the face. You memorize the face and attach the name to that face. Because I always, I have no problem at all with faces. You know, I'll see someone either in person or in a movie or on TV, and I always remember where I've seen them. I mean, I can tell you what I have seen them in. You know, even okay, I remember they were so and so in this and so and so in that. But I still may not remember their name, so I, I, it's part of its exercise. I need I need to do that more and think about it, you know. And it's where we put priorities because the brain, uh, although you know, in theory we use this this tiny portion of it, we're still using in our active processing. If you think of it like a computer, you know, uh, the bandwidth is is that that is limited. There's only so much you can do at any one time, and and I think. People tend to prioritize those things, so I probably need to maybe sort that a bit and get it rearranged and uh, and, and put more emphasis on that because you know names are important. People get really offended if you don't remember, and I used to run into that all the time. DJing, I mean, here's someone I've, I've maybe seen. I've DJ, you know, seen him at 20 parties, and I still don't, I still can't think of their name. But I may have only heard it once or twice. So, uh, speaking of all this, have we heard from Martha? No, it looks like, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so sorry to say it this way, but it looks like she's forgotten to call in. Uh, well, I'm trying I, to resist memory jokes. Oh, yeah. I let's see. I mean, we just, we certainly had the confirmation on it, and uh, I, you know, I, what I've started doing because we do so many interviews, and we are, are just by statistics going to run into issues from time to time. Started requesting phone numbers so that I can call in case we have any problem, but I am seeing we don't have a phone number for Martha. So uh, <laughs> that's that's not helpful. I'm looking at the confirmation right now. Uh, interesting. Well, uh, she certainly... Well, well, if she's listening and has somehow uh, misplaced the number, uh, she's welcome to call in at 646-595-3195. And uh, if not, I guess we can probably just take anyone who calls 646-595-3195 and have a little bit of an open line Wednesday until uh, until about 20 minutes after the hour. Yeah, so. certainly always that option. And, and uh, you know, this really is a fascinating topic. I, uh, I think this is one of the few books, for some reason, I just didn't receive it because I think I was supposed to get it a long time ago because I believe we originally had... Martha scheduled for for a while back, and uh, I've I, I haven't been able to find it. I looked all over the place, and I honestly I don't think I ever got it. But anyway, it's really a fascinating topic, and I've been as I said, um, there's a, a excellent link. Actually, if you just put in her name, which is uh, Martha Weinman W E I N M A N Lear L E A R. If you just put that into a search engine, I'm I'm on Google for no particular reason. The first return that comes up is a really cool NPR interview with her and included with that NPR interview and that was from uh, February is this uh, uh, very lengthy actually excerpt from the beginning of the book so you're certainly all invited to check that out it gives a lot of information actually just in a short period of time including what I was saying about about names she did a survey just with her friends she's a a middle-aged woman herself and was finding she was starting to run into some issues from time to time, was very disturbed about it because she's a writer and, you know, very successful. And she was on staff of uh, New York Times Magazine. She's had uh, other bestsellers, including, uh, what was the one I knew, uh, Heart Sounds, uh, I had heard of. And uh, her other book was The Child Worshippers. Uh, but anyway, the, the five questions she put to uh, an informal collection of friends as far as what do you have the most problems with was where did I leave my glasses what was I just saying what did I come in here for what did I ask you to remind me to do or what's his or her or its name and she said um, by far the name issue was the one that that the most 
that people had the most problem with. And uh, as she started looking into it, what she found was, uh, and speaking to research and whatnot, found that, uh, as I mentioned, names typically don't really have any sort of association. They don't mean anything. They're just they're just right. words. Like on the other ones, I'll often ask my wife or ask someone, hey, remind me to do X, but the very act of asking that is usually enough to cause me to remember it, and all of a sudden I don't need a reminder. Of course, if I get to be too confident and stop asking for reminders, then, of course, I won't remember them. Nevertheless, I mean, so I can see why the question, what did I ask you to remind me to do, wouldn't be a problem. Um, <laughs> the, the question almost answers itself. Yeah, and another thing that's that's disturbing here is because I, I certainly hadn't thought in these terms, but as I said, I'm, I'm I'm I find myself from time to time just it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm kind of grasping for it, and you know, one of the things that's that's kind of always defined me, at least until now, is being very glib and able to talk quite a bit uh, about pretty much anything extemporaneously. And and you know, I have a lot of experience. I have done a lot of TV, and especially radio where you do that and i find i kind of been thinking about what is the process how do i do that and you kind of think like a writer does although not nearly as as specifically and and in such um with such granularity and that you kind of think in terms of paragraphs okay now i'm covering this i'm going to go through these thoughts then i'll move on to the next paragraph and you know hopefully you come you come to an end and and bring the circle full but uh Anyway, uh, to, to demonstrate what I was just talking about, the uh, circumlocution, back to the name issue, apparently it is really, really common, in fact, normal, for, for a person to start noticing the very, very beginnings of this, like, happens, whoa, why couldn't I think of that, as young as 45. So, man, that's... That's that's not what I expected, you know. Uh, my parents are both very lucid. They're they're both 75 and they're they're sharp. I mean, you know, no one's perfect, but uh, they're they're both mentally very active. They read a lot, they talk, they think. They they are engaged with the world. Uh my mother has some physical issues like her she's got pretty bad arthritis, so she doesn't move around as well and I find that painful to watch and and uh but mentally you know she's she's doing fine and um my other grandparents uh actually three of the four really didn't live all that long uh my but my father's mother lived to 95 and she was quite sharp and well into her into her 90s so i it's all relative you know i mean i, I guess it's very normal to have the occasional slippage and that there are things you can do about it although you know, you can't be, go from being a very forgetful person to a to a, an amazingly acute person just by exercising and practicing and whatnot. But if you do all the right things and uh, and read and think and practice and and uh, they say games are really good. I know you play a lot of games. You find that uh, sharpens your mind. I do, and in fact, it's kind of interesting. I um you know last year I spent a lot of time playing a, a, a daily calendar game called Kakuro, which is. Uh, when you get bored of Sudoku, it's what you move on to, I think. Uh, they used to be called cross sums when I when I do them in uh, Dell Logic Puzzles books. And I would do several of them daily on my lunch hour, and I would just burn through them, I and mean, I could do them very quickly. And then, for whatever reason, I, I think I ran out of steam in about June or so, and uh, just started tearing off the days and sticking them in a drawer. And recently, I, I picked up all those Kakuros beginning in June, and uh, sat down, and I'm telling you, the first three I picked up, I couldn't finish. I, uh-huh. I would I would get to a point where I'm like, uh, this probably takes like nine steps of remembering, and I can only work my brain up to six. And, but I, just, I kept at it, and by the time I got to the fifth one, then I solved it, sixth, seventh, and then the next day I blew through them in, you know, five or six minutes each, and then went back to the ones that had stumped me, and I felt stupid because they were so obvious then. Yeah, well, that that really does bring up a a great point that that practice with anything, you know, your brain is is an organ. Your brain is a, a function of your body, and like any other part of your body, your muscles, um, you know, in particular, the most obvious, anything you work and use and and exercise, you know, that makes all the difference in the world, and and uh, it doesn't necessarily take that long to get yourself into shape. There's, there's probably a curve there where you can move up, you know, quite quickly 
Sure. But then to 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 get to you well, know that. It's fun. interesting. It's interesting that you mention that because I I read an article last week and I've just uh, looked it up here on Yahoo News now. Uh, literally one week ago, uh, the there was an excerpt. There were news articles based on the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology talking about uh, as uh, Gianna Briner, a LiveScience.com staff writer, uh, paraphrased it. We learn from our mistakes. But what we learn is how to make more mistakes. <laughs> um, the idea is that these uh, experimental psychologists did research where they, they looked into uh, tip of the tongue uh, phenomenon, where you know you know you've got that word, you know that word is there in your brain, but you just you 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 can't quite spit it out. And the idea is your brain has accessed the word, but it can't retrieve the sound information that corresponds to it. And it, and it does happen more to older people, more to bilingual people, and more to people with brain damage, but it, it tends to happen to everyone. And as, as they mentioned, it can be really frustrating um, because you, you, know, you know you know the word, you know it's right there, and you know it will come to you, but the problem is the more time you spend trying to remember it, the more you reinforce the neural pathway that can't remember that word. The mistake pathway, she calls it. Interesting. Uh, so, it's, so you should move on quickly. Right. So the idea, and that's what I did with these Kakuo puzzles, because I had just read this article that Wednesday, and then Thursdays when I picked up the uh, puzzles at lunchtime, and I thought, oh, I'm stuck. What I don't want to do is sit here for 10 minutes fixating on it, because I'll, I'll fixate on not knowing the answer. So I would move on to the next puzzle, move on to the next puzzle, and uh, eventually that's where I could solve one. And then sure enough, when I went back to those first puzzles, it was, it was obvious because I hadn't, you know, exercised my brain in a can't-think-of-it sort of way. So I thought that was really interesting. And so the, the research actually suggests that if you, you, you know, you don't, don't spend longer than a couple seconds, if you experience this tip-of-the-tongue problem to quickly move on, ask someone else what the answer to your dilemma is, give them the, the sentence and ask them to fill in the word, do something, you know, Google something on the web. Whatever you do, don't try to continue to recall it uh, because, you know, at that point you're just... You'll create a groove, a mistake groove. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, it brings up another topic. We, only, we in theory, only have uh, three more minutes. Assuming our next guest call in, calls in, which I, I've, been, I've been communicating with uh, the other two actually throughout the day, so I'm, I'm pretty confident about that. Sure. But uh, it brings up really a whole uh, – something that is, that is anthropological in terms of, you know, the, the long-term uh, stretch of, of human activity, and that is – and all uh, you know, communication and all knowledge in the past, until really quite recently, in in uh, in terms of evolution, was by memory. Everything was verbal. You had to memorize everything. And writing is very recent, and and even more recently that it was a generally practiced thing. You know, illiteracy. Generally available. There may have been books for a long time before people had them in their homes. Yeah, but I mean, there's only been you know mass-produced books since uh, the 1500s, sure. and there was only you know there's a tiny number of books that all had to be handwritten. And then it's yeah, it's uh, the Bible. It's, prior to that, and it was just a tiny, small portion of the population that knew how to read. So you know, until really recently, in terms of have you know human evolution, people had to remember much, much more than they do now. And think of how how much worse it's going to get because now not only uh, do you have uh, you know reading so that you don't have to remember all the things that you know you have access to as far as reading goes? But now we have the internet. You don't have to remember hardly anything. I mean, my kids don't know how to tie their shoes. You know, because they don't have to. Not that that I, actually. I, I like Velcro, I, dude. I've got an iPhone, so I have the internet in my pocket wherever I go. You can I, I look can up anything at any time. You don't have to remember anything at all. What are my kids' names? I'm gonna go look that up. Real quick. I have pictures of my kids in my phone, so that's and, and the way that relates to what you were saying is, is it's use it or lose it. You know, if that's you're not exactly. practicing, I'm sure we all have the capability of having, you know, a, a amazing mnemonic. I love that word, mnemonic uh, feats, but we just don't practice that much. You know, and, and there's not all that much memorization that goes on anymore. Even kids, you know, they're not having to memorize nearly as much as, as even we did when we were kids. And, and, you know, earlier generations going back, I just heard something. I think it was probably on the radio. It was probably on NPR, I'm guessing. Um, 
but it was a really interesting. Yeah, it was NPR. Interesting story about uh, they were off in some way way remote village in China, and most of the people still in this town were uh, in this village way out in the middle of nowhere were still illiterate. And uh, but but that was changing. It was in the process of changing. And uh, a woman, an elderly woman, was the last person who knew the history of the, of the village all the way back in time. And what she had done is, uh, and, and she said people her age all knew this. It was a song. They memorized a song that was hours long. It took hours to sing that song. But it was the entire history of that village. And none of the younger people, middle-aged and, and young people, were interested in learning it because it was just too long, it was too much effort, it was boring, it was lame. You know, they could read it. Um, you know, the, the upcoming generations uh, could read the history. of. Look, if I want to know the history of my village, I can read it. I don't have to memorize it, uh, you know, with, with a song that, that takes three or four hours to recite. But just think of what it takes to know that and, you know, what's in her brain and what's lost in terms of, you know, how we function. And I think we need to remember that. Everything that's perceived as progress, you know, there's always another side to it. Sure. And the more, the easier it is to get information, the less we have to remember and the less we are exercising our brains in a way that, you know, every human until extremely recently, um, you know, had to do just to function, just to survive and to, uh, to exist in society. Well, you know, if, uh, if Ray Bradbury's uh, dystopian future of Fahrenheit 451 ever, ever happens, we'll have people go back to memorizing books. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm convinced the human brain is capable of it. We just, uh, we just don't try it. So just a quick wrap-up note on the, uh, on the memory segment of our show. Yeah, you knew, you knew this had to happen. <laughs> it's, it's so ironic, I, I can't even stand it. But uh, if you want to find that article I mentioned, uh, you can just type why you make the same mistake twice into a search engine. That is the title of the article. Uh, the first link for me in Google is uh, Yahoo News Recap. Uh, the second link is actually at LiveScience.com. And uh, that is what I was uh, talking about earlier today, uh, earlier in the show, I should say. Now, our next guest is a very successful producer who worked with one of my favorite guilty pleasure artists, Scatman John. I, I just love his stuff, uh, loved his stuff. As well as the just plain guilty band, Milli Vanilli. Uh, there's a movie in production about that scandal, but Tony Catania is also producing a current project with Phoenix Block. You may have heard of their song, Future Calling, as it is featured in a very popular video for the Obama presidential campaign. Let's kick things off by listening to a sample of Phoenix Block. This is Future Calling. Calling from Phoenix Block, the latest project from producer Tony Catania. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Tony. Hi, how you doing? We're doing very well. Very well, thank you. Is, is Andrew with you? Yeah, yeah. Hi, Eric. Andrew Jaffe here with Tony, and, and I think on the line we may have Steve Schofler as well from Phoenix Block. Oh, excellent. Hey, guys, how are you? Very hey. well, thank you. Congratulations! What tremendous success! I, you know, honestly, I hadn't realized what a phenomenon this was. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I book in the show, and I mean, I don't know if you guys heard, we didn't even have the first author call in, so we end up t talking about memory on our own. Unfortunately, we're both we are both inveterate blabbers, so that worked out fine. But you know, I'm lining up the show, getting everything ready, and and it, it finally comes down to the day of. You know, typically when I really start doing the research and listening to everything and all that. And I had no idea what an enormous hit, uh, you know, that song is and the tide of the 
Obama campaign. So that's that is absolutely tremendous. Congratulations on it, and it's a great song too. I really like it. Thank you, thank you. You know, it's just really coming out in the last few days where it's really taking on a life of its own on on the MySpace video hits right now. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it's, it it's is the, the number, number one, right? One, number one news and politics video for today. It's the number seventeen uh, music for today. It's the number fifty two of every single video on MySpace. It's number fifty two for today. That's pretty amazing. I mean, there are some uh, obvious attention getters involving scantily clad women ahead of you. But, Typically. Uh, <laughs> it's shocking that we got that high without resorting to that. But. Exactly. But, you know, we thought the song would fit real well with the Obama message, you know, of hope and change and you know, about staying positive. So that's kind of where we thought that song might fit well. In that campaign, how did that connection come about? I mean, is that are they officially using it for their campaign? Not as of yet, as far as we know. We have um, a company doing PR that has a connection with the campaign, so we think that they're in negotiation with the campaign right now. But we don't have anything official to report right now. But I'm sure it's going to catch their eye uh, just with this week's plays. Oh, I would imagine, and and you know what, with the guy being. Uh, Featured rather prominently in the video. <laughs> yeah, that's the hope. Sure, you know it can it can help out with the campaign and also give Phoenix Block you know some exposure here with with the sound that we're trying to kind of yeah. get out. Yeah. So what gave you the the idea to make that connection then? With with the sound or or with the video with the, with to to make the video you know uh, based on on the Obama campaign. Well, it was just an idea that stemmed from, you know, we have an album with 13 songs, and this was a song, you know, that had a positive message. And you know, as you watch these campaigns unfolding on TV and you see some of the, you know, songs that are used to promote them, it just kind of hit us, you know, I, I can't remember exactly who or when, but it was like, you know, this song might work well for Obama's campaign. You know, it's kind of a cutting-edge type of sound, and, you know, he's kind of a cutting-edge type of candidate. And so, kind of thought that would help to create a buzz as well for the song, which you know it seems to have done. I, I believe we missed the uh, input from, and I, I didn't hear your name. Who, who is Mr. Phoenix Block guy with us? Yes, uh, Andrew uh, Jaffe. Yeah, and here is Tony, the producer. And Steve Schofler. Steve Schofler. Yeah. Steve, yeah, no, I, I certainly know uh, that Andrew and, and okay, Steve. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I, were you just saying something? I, I, yeah, were, no, I, I just felt that, that some of the lyrics in, in the song actually fit some of the message that, that uh, Senator Obama is trying to get out there. So you know, yeah. there was some lineage. You know, Not that the song was, was written for that intent, but it seems to have some, some similarities between what he's, what he's putting out there and, and what we were talking about. Ah, well, that makes perfect sense. Very, very, very cool. And uh, I enjoyed the other song. I've only heard the two now. So you guys are, are looking for a deal, is that right? Well, we're basically independently kind of produced so far the al- you know the album and and basically the PR that's going into it. And we're looking to see kind of what deals come our way in terms of distribution or major label interests. Uh, but we're kind of progressing forward on our own with, you know, kind of creating a buzz on our own. You know, we have, with Tony's background in the music industry, you know, he has a lot of uh, history in the industry and a lot of connections, so he's put a lot of his own personal efforts into the project and to get it to get it out there. So, um, you know, we're hopeful it'll it's something that will catch on on its own or, or someone, you know, major will pick up on us, you know, once this buzz continues to create here. And did I see that, Andrew, that you do you write with the band? You're, are you involved with the band? Yeah, I'm the lead singer. Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. I'm the, I'm the spokesman, I guess, and lead singer. Oh, <laughs> lead singer, yes. So, uh, obviously, then we have two people from the band. Okay. Three. Three. Steve, Steve Dopley, yeah. Right. Well, but Tony's producer. So, Tony, hi. How are you? When did you go to Florida? How long have you been in the U.S.? Yeah, now about 16 months. And, you know, I live before 22 years in Germany. And I was really young in that time. And, you know, my first job that I got over there was with Frank Farian. Um, before the Milanini project started, I was an engineer in the studio for two years. 
And uh, after one year, um, Frank started uh, with the project Mini Vanilli. And yes, after that, I left the studio after the two years and I opened my, uh, up my own studio in Germany. And I did a lot of things, like Scatman John was a really big hit all over, all over the world almost. And other European hits that maybe in America is not so popular, but you know, in Europe um, it was really big, you know. And uh, yes, and now I come here to Florida just, you know, to get um, uh, out uh, of, you know, Europe and get new ideas, uh, you know. Sometimes as artists you need to move in other places to, you know, to refresh your mind and, you know, um, make new people, get new inspiration, new ideas is the reason why I moved to, to the U.S. Well, it seems to have worked because... Uh seems like a bit of a different sound than... Yeah, to tell the truth, you know, all my life I just did uh, music um, for, you know, uh, commercial music. This project is, uh, for me, like something special because this is personally the music that I listen uh, into my private time. And, you know, it's the reason why I, you know, I also be in the band. I play the bass and, you know, produce the records and, you know, it's my personal path of music, this uh, Phoenix block. I love, uh, you know, rock music. But in my past, I did, uh, you know, a lot of different things. This is the first time that I, I do something that I really like. That's tremendous. Yes, go ahead, please. Interestingly enough, when Tony started with the project, he started as the, as the producer. But as he explained, he kind of got, he kind of got, enveloped into this whole sound that we were all creating and then actually uh, began playing bass on some of the tracks and, and, and joined in with the group to, to kind of form this sound. So you guys are Phoenix Block, man. Yeah, we're, we're, we're just missing one member is our drummer, Daryl Nutt. Yeah. And he's, he's an incredible drummer and that kind of finished out the sound. You know, right. Steve, Tony, and myself, you know, were the primary songwriters. Um, but Daryl really came in to really kind of strengthen the sound that we all created. Right. And um, so he, he's not available tonight, but, but you got three out of the four. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's perfectly, that's excellent representation. No, no problem there. Wow, well. <laughs> I was going to add, too, that Tony, you know, came with, with a sound, you know, Steve and I had been writing songs since a very young age and um, very influenced by early on by Beatles and then, you know, through the 80s, you know, grew up with the sound of the 80s, really, and, um, but had more of the American rock background. And Tony really came kind of modifying our sound with kind of a European influence. So I think the thing that's unique, if there is, about our sound is that it has that kind of mix of, of American-European sound. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's rock and with with some with an electro uh, element to feel, yeah. Yeah, I I think it's great. I, I think the uh, future future looks good. Absolutely. We're, we're hoping it's calling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we should we should mention actually uh, there are a couple of different websites that people can visit to find out more. There's uh, myspacecom music altogether P H O E N I X B L O C K M U S I C. Uh, is the site for the band, and you can listen to samples uh, or listen to uh, a bunch of the songs on there. And then there's also, of course, myspace.com slash Catania Music, C-A-T-A-N-I-A Music, uh, for Tony Catania's uh, specific site where he's got some of his uh, past with Scatman John, R&G. Uh, funny, you don't seem to be listing any Milli Vanilli stuff on there, but, um, hmm... Yeah, you know, in that time was, you know, I, I was engineer, I did all things, but, you know, um, I prefer to put uh, on my side a project that I really create on myself, like Scatman John, I really created from the peak, you know, I, I find the artist, I find the sound, I, I sold to a record company, you know, I want to represent me, uh, you know, with the thing what I really, really, really did from the peak, you know. Milo Vanilli was my first project with Frank. I just walked in the studio. I did um, with him this production. But, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, uh, I think it's enough to write on the side, um, you know, my history. I think it's going to be enough. Like, the Scatman John was a really massive hit. You know, I don't need to write about 
every single hit that I did, you know. Sure. I was going to no. add, guys, it's interesting that another engineer, young engineer there in that yeah. studio with Tony at the time was Toby, Toby God. Toby God, who was uh, who is the guy who wrote uh, that Fergie hit song, Big Girls Don't Cry. He's, oh, he moved to New York a couple of years ago. So they so they both interestingly met in the studio many years ago on that project and right. both went on to have you know number one hit success as producers. Yeah, that that it is really interesting. Hey, on some of the um, the promo info, it, it sort of implied that there may be some remaining Millie Vanilli secrets as yet untold to the waiting world. Is that true? It's a couple of things that right now we 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 can't talk about this uh, like a big secret before the movie come out, you know. And uh, I yeah. guess that would kind of blow it's the kind movie. Of limited, but I mean, I guess uh, you know a lot of it out there is probably public information already. No. Or... Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, can you tell us about the movie? And, you know, the last time I talked with Frank was one year ago, and, you know, I know he's going to make this movie, and uh, I know about all the story, you know. Uh, he always starts with the musical about uh, Bonnie M. and Mille Vanilli. Uh, about a couple of months ago, he started with that. He started in London, and now he's going to be in the States, too. I think in Las Vegas, he's going to make some shows. And um, I think the idea with the movie and the musical uh, both come to the, in the same time, and the musical was just a test to make a movie. And I think the musical is really successful right now. It's why it's come, uh, you know, after this, Frank decided to make the movie. And, um, yeah. Interesting. And it, and it's well, been about 20 years, uh, almost 20 years, so it seems like maybe it's time to for people to think back about it, so that might be good timing. Hey, you know, that first album, look, there's nothing wrong with it. It's classic. There's filled with great songs and, and excellent performances. And by the way, it was very well engineered, I should mention. <laughs> and, you know, I mean... I like my passion to, to, you know, to find sound, you know. I can spell like... Uh, 24 hours a day, just sit down in the studio and try to create new sounds. You know, that, that's the interesting thing is on that, you know, the two young engineers at that time were this Toby God and Tony Catania, who, as I say, both went on to write, to not only produce, but to write and produce number one hit songs. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, you, you never you never know. How did you get into engineering? Had you had a, a background or had you had that's training or was that the beginning of it? I, yes, you know, it was a really uh, a funny story. I was in Ibiza in Spain to make vacation, and I met Frank uh, on the beach. I was with my guitar, and, uh, you know, he comes to me. I don't know in that time, I don't know anything about him, where this guy is. But after a couple of days, we become friends, and he invited me um, in Frankfurt to come um, visit the studios. And I was there. And you know, didn't he, Tony, didn't he like a, a friend of your girlfriend's? Wasn't that why he was? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we was there with a couple of girls, and you know, <laughs> it was a funny story. And I know he invites me. You know, before we start to work together, we have a lot of fun. You know, like more private than the business. Um, and you know, then he asked me to to work to start um, with this company. And um, yes, I did, and I was there two years, like every day working in the studio. And um, yes, you know, but you it's a great experience you because in that time uh, everybody comes to recording in the studio. Like Stevie Wonder was there, Terence Darby, and in that time I was there. Stevie Wonder recording uh, a song. Um, I just uh, called to, to say, say I love you in that time in the same studio. Huh? Yeah. What's the name of that studio? Uh, Farm Music Studio. Okay. And what town is it in? It's, oh, it's a little, little town uh, um, close to Frankfurt called Rosbach. Ah, yes. <laughs> I remember hearing that. I remember the... Yeah, it's a little town. Maybe in the whole town, they just have 10 house, houses. 
That's it. It's really, really small. So there's not a whole lot to do except make no, records, huh? Nothing to do. Just, just walk all day. <laughs> so, Tony, you did have formal training, though, in engineering. Didn't you go to yeah, I did, I did, music school? Yeah, before I started with Frank, uh, yeah, you know, you I, had did, a I did, uh, I did uh, the SAE school, engineer school in Frankfurt, um, what I closed up with really great, uh, uh, what is sport? A great uh, diploma, a diploma, yes. graduation, uh, graduation, and um, after that I was in England too, and I was for a couple other studios, and um, you know I did a lot of experience in different studios uh, all over Europe, and um, also I work a lot with the guy that did uh, I don't know if the song is big all over the world, Volare, it's the Italian song. Uh huh. Sure. You know Volare? Oh yeah. Yeah, the the, the original uh, songwriter was Enzo Migliacci, an Italian guy. I did a couple of things uh, with him together. We won San Remo in Italy um, with a brand new artist uh, called Adriano Rocco, was really big in Italy. And yeah, you know, all this experience, um, you know, it's, uh makes me, you know, I, I, I love to do music. You know, I never get tired. And here you are in the U.S. Right. With, a, with an alt-rock band in Florida yeah. right. playing the bass. Yes! <laughs> it's a crazy <laughs> world. Yeah. That's how he actually started, though. Right. He started a band playing the bass. Yeah. Right? He came full circle here. Right, right, right. Very interesting. Well, yeah. that is a great story. And yeah, I mean, that's a really a hot song, and I'm glad to see it's getting the attention it's getting. Hey, don't we have another one? Do we have another tune we can play? We did. Yeah. Another, this next song is called Chemtrails, and that's kind of the title track of the album. And one of my favorite tracks on the album, yeah. too. This one, Steve actually came up with this massive guitar riff that most people have probably never heard before, this type of sound, and that kind of was really the, the root of this song, and it's kind of about uh, this conspiracy theory of the chemtrails, and people can certainly search that theory online and make their own opinion about that, that theory. Right. Do we have that one ready to go, Philip? We do. Here is chemtrails, or 48 seconds of it. Chemtrails, the title track from Phoenix Block's debut album. You can find out more about the band at phoenixblock.com uh, and more also about Tony Catania, the producer and bass player for the band at myspace.com slash Music. Um, there's also actually a chance to buy the album, it looks like, an electronic copy of the album from the, uh, the band's MySpace page. So you might want to check that out. I'm, I'm pretty impressed by what I've heard so far. Thank you to Tony Catania, Steve Schoffler, and Andrew Joffe for joining us tonight. You're welcome. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Really great. Really appreciate it. And best of luck with, with it all. We, uh, we'll, we'll see you at the Grammys next. <laughs> well, uh, changing gears musically just a little bit, uh, Flipper are working on a new album. Flipper is working on a new album. It depends, I guess, on which side of the Atlantic I'm on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I say is, man. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I've been reading too much. They're an entity. They are a single entity. Too, too many English writers recently, and I pick up Englishisms, Anglicisms. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, that is uh, good news for many people who've enjoyed Flipper's music since they formed as a punk band in San Francisco in 1979. Uh, you can find out more about the band and listen to a couple of tracks at myspace.com slash flipper. But here is also a little taste right now uh, from an August performance at Dante's in Portland. This is The Lights, The Sound.
Well, that was The Lights, The Sound from Flipper, recorded live at Dante's in Portland uh, just last year. We are going to talk right now with Steve DePace, the drummer for Flipper. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Steve. Hey, hello there. Hi, Steve. How are you? It's Eric Olson. All right. Hi. How are you, Eric? I am I am doing very well. It's very much a pleasure to speak with you. Absolutely. I was just checking out my. I knew I knew I had it in the collection. I can't get at my vinyl because I'm at my office. I have uh, I I have the uh, I have a couple of yours on vinyl, of course, because that's the era we're talking about. But I was just listening to American Graffiti, and uh, that was a that was a real return there. You guys rocked out. You have that man. It's a ragged kick you in the nuts. Slow, crushing sound, and and I dig it. Well, I'm glad you did. I I personally really like that record. Um, there was uh, there was mixed reviews on that record when it came out in 1993. Yep. Um, you know, both. Well, most of the mixed reviews were from uh, you know critics, reviewers, and they can always be fickle. But uh, you know, I personally loved that record. I I, I think it uh, it holds up today and. It was definitely a departure from, or, you know, somewhat of an evolution, I would say, from what we had done before. Uh, but, you know, what are you going to do? You can't stay exactly the same your whole life. So. No, and it's not like you prettied it up any. I mean, it's still pretty ragged. Yeah. But, you know, so, um, I, what I noticed, too, is in listening to, to all the material, that, that while the sound is certainly ragged, uh, the drumming is always tight and clean. You really do hold the band together. Well, thank you very much. I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you, for those of us, uh, not for, not me, of course, but for those uh, perhaps younger members of the audience, why don't you give us just a little background on the band, you know, going all the way back to, to 79, and, and, and do you have, how many original members do you have now? Are you, are you the there's, only one? There's three. No, we have three original members. Our singer, we're we're very happy to have three of us, you know, still alive and kicking. Um, our singer Bruce Luce, um, our guitar player Ted Falcone, and myself on drums are all original members. And our most recent addition to the band is uh, Mr. Chris Novoselic from uh, obviously from Nirvana. Yeah, we've heard of him. And, yeah, and um, uh, you know, I mean. Originally, you know, in 79 when we got started, there was a uh, gentleman by the name of Will Shatter who was in the band who was, uh, you know, unfortunately died in 1987. But, you know, we had him for a good uh, seven or eight years, um, and he was a good friend, and we were sad to see him, uh, you know, fall off the planet. But, uh, again, what are you going to do? That's life. Um but uh, you know he and Will Will Shatter and Bruce Luce, as many may know, um, used to kind of trade off on the vocal uh, duties, and uh, both of them wrote lyrics, both of them uh, sang, and both of them played bass. So uh, you know they kind of alternated back and forth, and it was pretty much fifty-fifty. Um, you know, so throughout the course of a show. They would trade off back and forth, you know, one would play bass, one would sing. So it was kind of fun like that. And, um, uh, you know, then when Will died uh, in 1987, we kind of, uh, we we stopped playing and we didn't do anything for a couple of years. And then we um, got back together again in 1990 with a friend uh, on bass. And he wasn't, you know, much of a vocalist, so he really stuck to playing bass. And Bruce ended up inheriting the, uh, you know, lead vocal uh, job full time. And uh, that's when we recorded the uh, the, the album that you uh, just mentioned, American Graffiti, and that was under a new record deal that we made uh, at that time with uh, Rick Rubin, who was a huge fan of ours from the very early days of the band, uh, back when Rick was. Uh, a student at U, um, NYU. Um, he started his uh, record label right there in his little dorm room there at NYU. You guys are in New York, right? We, uh, Phillips in Dallas, and I'm in Cleveland. Okay. Uh, somehow or another, this phone number I called came up as New York. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. The uh, Blog Talk Radio is, is New York. Okay, so, uh, you know, um, 
Are we live, by the way? Oh, yeah, we are. are. Live, yeah. live, live. Excellent. It's Excellent. What's, what's really cool, uh, best of all, I think, among many most groovy things about Blog Talk Radio is their technology allows for uh, us all to call in on the phone, so it's not like we have to you know, physically get together. Obviously, it makes it a lot easier to interview people from all over the world, and, and we're able to be on live. Plus, then it's automatically archived for, uh, for streaming or, or downloading. So you know, from now on, the show is available right at, right at that, uh, the URL here, and so it's really efficient. That's really great. Wow, modern technology. It, it really is. It's such a big step forward from just regular old podcasting because you know you have all the editing issues and you got to assemble the thing and and worry about you know um, getting it together and then um, making it available. Whereas this, you, you have the value of of live. And I, you know, I got a background long. I don't even want to say how long. Uh, before Flipper formed uh, in radio, on and off, not the whole time. And what I've what's really changed for me is so much these days is is so little of radio is actually live, you know, in in broadcast radio, and because everything is tracked and, and computerized, and they bring the DJs who track, uh, you know, a four hour show in a half hour. They just do the break. So everything, no matter how well they do it, there, there's it, there's a staleness to it. There's a canned aspect to it. It isn't live. You can't interact with callers, you know. Right. And um, and so I really do love the live aspect of it. Psychologically, I think it makes a big difference, too. Oh, definitely. Anyway, we were on uh, 1995, I think. <laughs> to cut back in here. Uh, what do you mean in what, what I was well, I you, in your tale, history, the tale of Flipper? I'll, uh, yeah, I'll I'll just carry on briefly, and then we can get to chatting. But uh, yeah, we uh, we got together with this guy. We you know Rick Rubin signed us, you know, and uh, we put out um, American Graffiti, and we put out a couple of the old records, and then uh, and, and then what happened was uh, you know out of the blue, our singer Bruce, who's still with us. Uh, got into a car accident and uh, really hurt his back, really wrenched his back, and that brought everything to a screeching halt once again. And uh, we ended our career at that point, and we didn't play for about 10, 12 years, 12 years, something like that. And uh, we got back together again in 2005. And then we, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, CBGBs gave us a call and asked us to come out and participate in um, a string of benefit concerts that they were doing. And they were trying to save the club from being closed down and evicted and all that. After and sent to Las Vegas. Years. Yeah. <laughs> did they ever, did they ever, that was the rumor. Did they ever do anything? Are they still working on that? Well, you? sadly, you know, Hilly died. I know that, yeah. So since then, I guess the dream has died off. I'm not sure. I, I think they're still putting together... Uh, I know the family was still talking about trying to do it, but who knows what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, because, I mean, now, think of the, the memorabilia. They have so much great stuff, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, now, you John, know, it's Vegas, and it's canned, and it's fake. But still, you know, it's probably still yeah. better, I think, to have that stuff together and have the memory live on and... and, and ha you know, I mean, it's the it's the age old argument. You know, is, is the Rock Hall a you know is that a positive thing? Is it something that's real and creative, or is it just you know is a museum just a can kind of feel? And you know, I can see both sides of it, but ultimately, I come down to you know, access is better than not. I think ultimately, you know, what would have been amazing is if they somehow could have carved that the inside of that club out of it. You know, just like. Re removed the entire innards of the club right. as is and put it in a freaking museum somewhere, you know, or, yeah, that would be where it would be. I agree, because, like, you know, you get those walls, you get those... You could men. never recreate all that, you, you know? Got, you have just that air, all all the <coughs> musicians have breathed that air and, and the beer and the piss, oh, and, man, right. you can't recreate that. Right. It, it was magic. Uh, it was magic. Yeah, John Barbados, the uh, uh, fashion designer, has opened a store uh, in that space in New York. Oh, that's right. I, I had heard that. Yeah, that was really a sad story, you know, because uh, they didn't have to kick him out of there. We re Ultimately, it was just kind of greed. And, you know, sure, all kinds of people, and obviously tons of musicians, including you guys, you know, really came to the fore. And I know Miami Steve was, was kind of leading the charge to – to hold on to it and have it declared a, a monument and all that, but 
right. you know, it's really too bad that that something didn't happen. Or, or I like your idea of just literally transporting the, you know, the in, the inside of it uh, elsewhere, so that you, so people really could pick up on the vibe. Because I think there really is something to that. There's something yeah. to having the real thing and not just a recreation. No matter how somebody somebody should have talked to what is the guy's name, Paul Allen, uh, from yeah. the uh, from Seattle. Right, the Hendrix uh, Museum. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, that guy, if anybody would have had the money to actually do that, <laughs> you know, literally, like, piece by piece, pull that whole thing out of there and leave just a, you know, a hole in the building, you know, a cavern, <laughs> it, and then reassemble it at the uh, museum up there in Seattle. Uh, well, that is a super cool idea. I like that a lot. Hey, you, how we connected with you guys is uh, there's a new DVD out, and, and that's pretty exciting. Right. I'm, I haven't seen it yet, but we should definitely talk about it. I'm, I'm really dying to see it. I'm going to make sure Clint gets me a copy of that. But it was you guys live, what, in 8081, isn't it? Yeah, right in that era. Uh, there's two shows plus a bonus, uh, which is sort of out of context. But the, the uh, bonus is a uh, was it's one song, "Sex Bomb," that was uh, filmed at a uh, or taped rather at a television uh, station. But uh, the two live shows, uh, one of them was at um, a place called Kizar Pavilion in San Francisco, which is kind of a, a basketball auditorium. And, um, you know, there were several thousand people at that show, and it was the final show of Throbbing Gristle. Whoa. And um, that show, you guys probably know, being in radio, they, they recorded that show. It was Throbbing Gristle live in San Francisco, and they released it as an album. And that was their last ever performance and their last ever uh, record that they ever put out. And uh, Flipper was tapped to be the opening act, and uh, we went, you know, it was still very early in our career, um, 80 or 81, something like that. And uh, we were, uh, we were, talk about raw, man, we were pretty raw. That was a noisy show, man. We were pretty rough and raw around the edges. Yeah, you're not kidding, it was noisy. <laughs> Between uh, you um, and Throbbing Gristle. <laughs> oh, you're telling, you're, oh, man, you're not kidding. That was the one and only show that my parents, came to. Oh, how funny. And, uh, you know, I invited them to come down to the show. You know, I thought, hey, man, we're, you know, we're doing pretty good now and we're sounding pretty tight. We've been together a few years and we got this big show. Hey, mom and dad, come on down, you know. And uh, I asked my mom, I went up to her after the show and I said, what did you think, mom? And she looked up at me and she said, it was loud. <laughs> that, that was her takeaway from it, you know? That was, her, that was her comment. It was loud, and she wasn't kidding. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it was an amazing show. I mean, uh, Ted Falcone, our guitar player, we were having all kinds of technical difficulties. Uh, well, we, of course, uh, you were recording it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, yeah. And then um, when we went... The technical difficulties we had at the show that we knew about were our bass guitar was crapping out on us, and um, uh, we and then our guitar player had problems with his guitar, kept you know screwing up on him. And at one point, he smashed his guitar to smithereens. He pulled a Pete Townsend and just smashed it to bits and threw it against the back wall and he picked up his spare guitar and, and you know, continued playing and um, it was amazing. And it then, was rock and roll, man. And then a, a few years ago when we pulled this thing out of the, you know, the vault and started uh, trying to think about, you know, putting it together and releasing it, we found that the audio was completely crapped out. Uh. So we had to, put, you know, call in the experts and... Uh, you know, go through the audio portion of this, and we didn't know what what had happened. You know, they they you know people standing on the cords or something got kicked unplugged or who knows what happened. But we were we managed. There was one of the cameras that had like the camera mic going or something. I don't know what it was, but we somehow the experts managed to salvage this thing only because of modern technology. Wow, you know, resurrected! They, they, that they, is very cool. Hey, you know I, what? As I, usual, I need, to, I need to interrupt really quick. Yeah, we're running out of time. We're about to roll to the after show. We're going to lose live listeners, so I hey, want to remind can I people. Say one thing before we oh, go. Oh, please carry on. Yeah, I want to announce. I want to announce a show that that just came together today, and I sent you guys an email on it just a few moments ago. But Flipper is going to be headlining the Pioneers of Punk, San Francisco Bay Area, 
at the Fillmore in San Francisco on July 26th. And it's going to be Flipper and the Avengers and the Mutants and Negative Trend is reforming. And uh, Target Video, who released this, uh, this DVD that we're talking about on MVD, uh, Target Video was the producer of the, of the video back in 1977. They, they videotaped all the great bands back in those days. And they're going to be showing an hour of like great old vintage video from all kinds of bands from back in the day. And it's going to be, again, at the Fillmore, San Francisco. Anybody who can make it, July 26th. Tickets go on sale May 18. Um, TicketmasterLiveNation.com. Anybody in San Francisco can go to the Fillmore box office. Um, anyway, there you go. Flipper will be uh, headlining this uh, really great historic show uh, July 26th. Wow, that really is spectacular. Well, Philip, can we get that info into the uh, onto, into the archive? Into the yeah, uh, I will. I will make sure it is updated at BlogTalkRadio.com/slash/BCRadio. Excellent. Yeah, and Steve, actually, we're not cut off. Uh, the the live show cuts off, but the archive keeps going, and we typically get a lot more listeners from the archive anyway. So, um, you know, we, we weren't we weren't cut off there at the at the hour mark so we can chat a bit more in fact if if you'd like i'm really interested what how are things coming together now with with the new band and with chris well things are really uh really really exciting i mean to me it's really amazing that we've had so many different lives you know lifetimes in this band so many different evolutions uh so to so to speak um and uh, you know we're we're back at it uh, full speed. We are talking to uh, different people about uh, you know we have a couple of different deals on the table right now. We have a new record that's recorded, and it's very it's a rock and rip roaring rock and record. We're very excited about it. Um, Jack and Dino, who uh, produced or rather who engineered, I, he may have produced it. I'm not sure if he produced it or just engineered it, but. Uh, I think he may have actually produced Bleach for Nirvana. Yeah. As well as many of the other, you know, records that came out of that grunge scene in Seattle. He um, was the grunge producer. Exactly, right. And he uh, he's a friend of Chris's, so we set up a makeshift recording studio uh, up there at uh, Chris Novoselic's uh, uh, residence up in uh, Washington State. And Jack came down and set up a bunch of equipment, and we... Um, recorded uh, 10 new songs, and we have since uh, mixed and so on these t- these songs. We're going to put a fi- few final tweaks on it here coming up soon and then master it and it's ready to go, and we have a couple of different record deal offers on the table right now. So there will be new Flipper music out, uh, I would say, around September, October of this year. Wow, that's and, very exciting. And that is very exciting. And we're going to be getting out and playing and touring and going out to Europe. And next year, by the way, is Flipper's 30th anniversary. Stunning. We will be, yeah, we will be uh, celebrating the entire year long with uh, getting uh, you know a lot of stuff out there and playing out and, uh, you know, new record out and all kinds of great stuff. So It really is a new life. I mean, not many yeah, bands have that kind of a, have that kind of, of uh, vitality at this point, you know? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Hey, one last question. We'll, we'll let you go. What okay. did you do in between? What did you do in between the band, the iterations well, of the band? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I made a move from San Francisco where I was living and I moved to Los Angeles. And I actually went to work, I got involved in the animation business and I went to work for, uh, at first I went to work for Hanna-Barbera Cartoons, which is the great company that basically invented the Saturday morning television show. Sure, of course. And uh, then from there I went to work for Warner Brothers Animation and um, I was working as a uh, production coordinator and a music consultant, oh. um, and uh, you know, so I, yeah, I had a, I had a great time. I worked for for that. I, I I worked in that business for about four years and just had a wonderful time. And then, um, uh, you know, after that, uh, you know, there was a little downtime here and there for me. But uh, the you know the band got back together again, and you know, and here we are. How fun! That was a great second career. Or- third or fourth or fifth career. Yeah, I yeah. love animation. Uh, that's, yeah, me that's too. That's tremendous. How fun. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, best wishes and good luck. And and it's 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 such a great story that you guys have carried on and come back together. And and and, and the fact that you have three original members after thirty years is that's pretty stunning. Yeah, it is. In in, in that kind of lifestyle, you know, because you know you guys are. You guys were living the rock and roll lifestyle, at least for a while, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we're looking forward to the rest of it, and we're going to ride the wave and see how far we go. Good for you. That's, well, that's... Thank, you ve- thank you very much for your support, and uh, you know, when we have new music, we'll make sure you guys get it. Love to hear and, it. Uh, awesome. All right, well, thanks, Steve, and, and uh, best wishes, and, and really hope everything just keeps going great for you. All right, thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Well, we also have a little bit of uh, the older music. This isn't uh, from the new album, but this is one more little track from the uh, August recording, I believe it was, at Dante's in Portland from last year. This is uh, 48 seconds of Ha Ha Ha. Man, I sure remember that one. That was on a collection I had of San Francisco punk bands, and uh, I, I played that song many, many times back in the day. Well, very good. The band is Flipper. Uh, the website is myspace.com slash flipper. Uh, you can look for information on the new album as it becomes available, and also uh, look for the DVD of called Flipper Live Target Video 1980-81 which is available from music video distributors, and they're hoping to release the entire back catalog sometime this year or the next, so you'll be hopefully hearing and seeing a lot of Flipper upcoming. And we have come to the end of our show, so thank you also to Tony Catania, Steve Schaffler, and Andrew Joffe from Phoenix Block earlier in the show. We won't mention anyone else who didn't show up. And, of course, to my co-host, Eric Olson, who does all of the heavy lifting around here. I'm Philip Wynn, and this has been DC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room and watch the live video feed. But if you do miss the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have DC Radio Live delivered to you each and every week. Until next week, aloha.